Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. In April of this year, I had the pleasure of interviewing senior fellow Jonathan Stromseth about the Southeast Asia region, economic and security tensions there, relations among those countries, and their relations with other powers such as India, China, and the United States. On today's program, Jonathan, who holds the Lee Kuan Yew Chair in Southeast Asian Studies here at Brookings, joins me again to share his conversation with a longtime diplomat and one of the leading foreign policy experts from the region. Just a reminder that you can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get information about and links to all of our shows. And an announcement, you can now listen to Brookings Podcasts on Spotify. If you have any questions for me or for the scholars who appear on the show, send your emails to bcp at brookings.edu. And now on with the first part of today's show. Jonathan, welcome back to the Brookings Cafeteria. Thank you very much, Fred. I'm really happy to be here. So when we spoke last time in April, you shared your expertise and insight on various aspects of a very important part of the world. And now you're going to bring us a unique and important perspective from the region. So can you tell me about the person you interviewed who we're about to hear? Yes, I had the chance to speak with Bilahari Kausikan, the former permanent secretary and ambassador-at-large of Singapore's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. He's currently the chairman of the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore. Okay, so he was part of the foreign ministry, but he wasn't the foreign minister, right? No, as permanent secretary, Bilahari was the most senior civil servant in the foreign ministry, whereas the foreign minister, by comparison, is an elected member of parliament. Okay, and how did you come about deciding to interview him? Well, Bilahari is a well-known and respected commentator of international trends in Southeast Asia and the broader region, including the role of major powers like the United States, China, Japan, and India. He always speaks his mind on critical issues affecting the region, and he certainly doesn't hesitate to provide straightforward advice and recommendations to Washington or Beijing. Now, when we talked, Jonathan, in April about Southeast Asia, it was intended to kind of bring this very important region to the attention of the listeners of the show and into a wider audience. Bilahari, in the interview, says that, you know, Americans know little about this very important region, so uh, listeners are going to hear mm. a lot of important things about why this region is important. Here at Brookings, you were doing research on Southeast Asia. Can you tell us more about the kinds of research projects that you're working on here? Yeah, I'm focusing on Chinese foreign policy towards Southeast Asia, including China's underlying strategic aims and its practical policy initiatives in the region. I'm also examining the possibilities for expanded or deepening U.S. partnerships with emerging partners in Southeast Asia like Vietnam and Indonesia in particular. All right. Is there anything else you want listeners to know about your discussion with Bilahari? Well, I thought I'd take this opportunity to say that this podcast will be promoted on a new online forum at Brookings called Southeast Asia Insights, where our goal is to bring more Southeast Asian voices to an American audience, especially on critical U.S. foreign policy issues affecting the region or involving the region. We're still in the soft opening uh, phase, so to speak, but we hope this will be the first of many such discussions. That's terrific. Well, without further ado, Jonathan, thanks again for stopping by. And here's your interview with Bilahari Kasakan. I'll just point out that you were here at night in Washington, D.C., and he was in Singapore 12 hours later on the phone. So without further ado, here's Jonathan Stromseth with Bilahari Kasakan. Well, I want to welcome you, Bilahari, to this podcast from the Brookings Institution. You've had a diverse and long career in foreign affairs. You're currently the chairman of the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore, but you've been your country's ambassador to the United Nations, a permanent secretary. Can you tell us just a little bit about how you started your career and how it evolved and what you're looking to do? It's all an accident. 
It's all a complete accident. I started off um, trying to pursue an academic career. Uh, the United States government, to which I'm still grateful, uh, whether you're grateful, whether you regret it or not, I don't know, <laughs> uh, gave me a Fulbright scholarship to, do, to pursue a PhD in the United States, in Columbia University. And I did it. I started writing my dissertation, and then I had an epiphany. I asked myself, do I really want to do this for the rest of my life? Uh, and uh, the answer was um, no. And if you don't want to pursue an academic career, why do you need a PhD? Right? So I decided to go back. Uh, uh, although the scholarship was given by the US government, I was bonded to serve the Singapore government. And uh, when they asked me where you want to serve, I, the only place I had some idea about was because my father was uh, a diplomat too, uh, was the foreign ministry. So I, I rashly said foreign ministry, right? Mm -hmm. and, and intending to leave once the, the period of my bond to the government was over, but I forgot to leave. And then, you know, the rest is history. The rest is history. Well, that's great. It's very interesting if I can say that I actually had a Fulbright to Singapore in the 1980s yeah. at the okay. National University of Singapore and then later yeah. went to Columbia for my PhD. So I guess we have a little bit of a connection here. Oh, we reversed the thing. Yeah, I, we just reversed I it. I got my undergraduate from then the University of Singapore, which became the National University. Right, right. It seems to me that Southeast Asia is typically described as a large, diverse, economically dynamic region comprised of 11 countries, almost all of which are members of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN. But these countries aren't as well-known, I think, to most Americans as, say, China or Japan. What should Americans know and understand about Southeast Asia, and how has this changed, say, over the past 30 or 40 years in terms of the role of the region, and where is it heading? Well, I find it a little bit surprising. I'm constantly surprised about how little Ameri most Americans know about Southeast Asia. And yet, you fought a very long and costly war in this region, uh, which, while the immediate aims of the war was not, were not met, in fact, it was a failed war, uh, you did buy time for the rest of the region to put our own house in order uh, and in that sense, laid the foundation of uh, a fairly prosperous and certainly peaceful, uh, fairly peaceful region that you see today. Mm -hmm. uh, Southeast Asia is not a natural region, by which I mean something that can be defined with relations to itself. For example, Europe can be defined with relation to itself. Southeast Asia, the only common feature is that there is nothing intrinsic to itself. It's in fact a geopolitical term that came into wide use only in the Second World War. Um, it lies at the crossroads between the Pacific and Indian Oceans. It's a very, uh, along very important trade routes, very important energy supply routes, and of course, militarily strategically significant routes. Uh, so it has always been at the center of major power contestation. Um, at, in the 60s, in the late 60s, uh, before ASEAN was formed, and even up to the early 70s, it was known as the Balkans of Asia. Because the peaceful region you see today was not something to be taken into uh, for granted. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, it would have been, it would, if you had predicted in 1967, when ASEAN was formed, that we would be in the quite good condition we are today, 
you would have probably been dismissed as a dreamer or a visionary or hallucinating. Mm -hmm. But here we are, and uh, here we intend to stay. And tell us a little about Singapore in particular, a city-state that seems to punch above its weight in Southeast Asia and more generally. What are the foreign policy goals and priorities of Singapore, particularly this year when it's serving as the ASEAN chair? Well, Singapore is, as you said, a city-state. Uh, it is a most improbable sovereign nation. Our founding fathers did not themselves believe that um, we could a city-state could survive by itself. And so we sought independence only within Malaysia in 1963. But for a variety of reasons that could not last, uh, we became independent in 1965. Now, Singapore, at least, I mean, the archaeological evidence suggests, at least since the 14th century, has been a, a major trading hub for, for the region. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is still our essential role. Of course, we have broadened the definition of that role. We are now a major financial center. We are a major oil refining center, although we have no oil whatsoever. <laughs> uh, we are a major logistic center. We are a major port. Um, uh, um, but you have to understand that modern Singapore is a totally artificial place. We should not exist. Uh, it was created by human endeavor and has to be maintained by human endeavor. This is another way of saying that a small city-state has no intrinsic relevance in the international system. Uh, relevance is an artifact to be created. And how we create it has to be uh, reinvented from time to time. We are currently ASEAN chair until the end of this year, 2018. Um, our goal is basically to keep ASEAN on track. We have some specific goals uh, defined by to enhance the resilience of the organization and also to start certain initiatives in, in, the, in the broad field of uh, digital economy. Um, a year is not an overly long time. So what we can do is start things and somebody else will have to take them forward, the next chair. Mm -hmm. Of course, we will still continue to play a role. Right. So it's, our goals are modest. <laughs> Let's turn to sort of broader trends in the region. You had said that Singapore has also witnessed the involvement of great powers and so on. And it seems recently there's so much media and scholarly attention focusing on China's rise and growing influence in the region with so much focus on its land reclamation activities in the South China Sea or its economic statecraft illustrated in the Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI. And in a recent speech I noticed from this summer, you discussed global trends that will shape Singapore's future, and one was the rise of China. But you cautioned that this term can sometimes be bandied about sort of loosely, almost like a trope, and you advised that we strive to understand China's rise in its full complexity. What did you mean by that, particularly in the Southeast Asian context? As a major power, a major economy contiguous to Southeast Asia, mm -hmm. uh, China will always have significant influence in this region. Um, significant influence, however, does not necessarily mean uh, exclusive influence uh, or even dominant influence. 
precisely because we are a strategic crossroads, as I earlier mentioned, mm -hmm. Southeast Asia will be always the scene of major power competition. That means other powers are bound to be present. The United States is here, and I think it's, you are here to stay. Japan is here. Australia, medium power, uh, is here. India is another major Asian power contiguous to the region. Uh, it is therefore strategically a complex region, but in that complexity uh, gives the small states of Southeast Asia, and remember the largest of us, even Indonesia or Vietnam, are still small by comparison to China or India or the United States or Japan. Uh, because there will always be major powers present, that gives us the possibility of maneuver, maneuver to uh, advance our own regional and national interests. One other point, I think, which is over overlooked, there is uh, China's rise is a geopolitical fact, right? Mm -hmm. But I think historically, uh, if you look at the history of uh, Southeast Asia, there has never been a period, except for a very short and exceptional period uh, of Japanese occupation during the Second World War, where any major power has being able to grasp the region whole. Uh, it's just too complicated, too shape-shifting uh, a region for any major power to, to claim exclusive dominance. I want to move to this question of sort of U.S.-China rivalry in a moment. But I had one other question on China in particular. I noticed that recently you've been raising concerns about China's policies on one issue in particular, its relations with, some people say, the overseas Chinese or ethnic Chinese populations in the region. What is at the root of your concern on this issue, and why is this potentially such a significant issue for Southeast Asia? Let me start with Singapore. Huh? Mm -hmm. Singapore is the only sovereign state whose population, whose population, the majority of the population are of ethnic Chinese origins. However, quite uniquely, in this region, Singapore is organized horizontally on the basis of a multiracial meritocracy. Um, it's not perfect, of course, there's no perfection to be found on earth, uh, if there's perfection only in heaven. But <laughs> if, you look around, uh, if you look around us, almost every country in this region is uh, organized on the basis of ethnic or racial hierarchy, which is a vertical organizing concept. It's explicit in Malaysia, which is in, in the Malaysian constitution. It's more informal, but nonetheless real in Indonesia, in Thailand too, in China, in Japan. Japan is a liberal democracy, but it's certainly ethnic Japanese are in a hierarchical relationship with say Japanese of Korean or, or you know, Chinese origin. Uh, uh, so that makes it unique. Now, I don't think, I think Chinese the Chinese PRC yeah, have great difficulty in wrapping their head around the idea of uh, ethnic majority country that does not organize, does not conceive of itself as a Chinese country. Um, the Chinese constantly refer to Singapore as a Chinese country. We ask constantly, um, politely demur and said we are not a Chinese country. We are a multiracial country. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it is an, uh, a, an existential issue for Singapore 
because the foundation of all that we have achieved since 1965 is this idea of organizing yourself on the basis of multiracial meritocracy. Uh, that is the fundamental social compact on which Singapore is based. And if that compact is broken, this is a small place, huh? mm -hmm. uh, if that is broken, it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to put it together. Now, in Southeast Asia as a whole, the role of the overseas Chinese is always going to be a sensitive issue. That is a fact. Unfortunate, but it is a fact. Now, uh, in 1955, the Chinese, between 1949 and 1955, the Chinese Communist Party and the Kuomintang were in fierce competition for the allegiance of the overseas Chinese communities of Southeast Asia. In 1955, for a variety of reasons, the Chinese Communist Party wisely, in my, in my, um, in my view, made a distinction between the Huaren, which is, you know, ethnic Chinese overseas, which could be of any citizenship, and the Huaqiao, which is ethnic Chinese of PRC nationality, and basically told the Huaren, you know, go and be good citizens of your own countries, wherever you are. More recently, however, uh, they have tried, they have merged this distinction. The narrative of the great rejuvenation of China under the leadership of the Communist Party by which it now legitimates its rule very insistently under Xi Jinping, uh, claims that the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation is of importance to, is of, uh, should be supported by all Chinese. In other words, a blurring of this distinction between the Huaren and the Huaqiao. Uh, organizationally, in March this year, the Overseas Chinese Affairs Office was placed under the control of the United Front Work Department of the Chinese Communist Party. Now, I think this is rather short-sighted because if something happens in Southeast Asia to the overseas Chinese communities, which has happened, you know, a riot, a racial riot, uh, which unfortunately cannot be entirely ruled out, uh, this puts the Chinese in a fix. Most recently in Malaysia, uh, it was not the main reason why the government lost the recent election, but it was certainly one of the reasons. The opposition uh, used this with great effect. Uh, and the Chinese ambassador in Malaysia during the election saw it fit to go and openly campaign for an ethnic Chinese candidate, government candidate. Needless mm -hmm. to say, the, the gentleman lost the election. I, I don't really understand why they have decided to blur this distinction, uh, but it is most unwise, not in China's own interest. That's very interesting. And I wanted to ask you about it because I've been reading some of the press reports where you've been quoted and so on. Let's turn now to the role of the United States. And I know you're a keen watcher of American foreign policy as well. And we've seen U.S. foreign policy toward Asia, including Southeast Asia, kind of evolve from, at least in the last two administrations, from the pivot to Asia or the rebalance policy of President Obama to now the free and open Indo-Pacific policy of the Trump administration. The new policy seems to take a more confrontational approach toward China, at least rhetorically. And I'm wondering how you evaluate the current trends in U.S. policy and any recommendations you might have for the Trump administration? 
Well, if you look at it, I don't like the term pivot or rebalance is only slightly better mm. because it connotes uh, inconsistency. What pivots one way can be it can pivot another way. But actually, if you look at US policy since the um, early 70s, uh, what has been most evident uh, is consistency. Uh, you are here and I don't see any sign of you retreating. The great disruption of US policy in Southeast Asia was the Nixon Doctrine or the Guam Doctrine in 1969. And since then, there has been with fluctuations from uh, administration to administration because every administration feels obliged to distinguish itself from the previous one, even if the distinctions are you know, minute. Um, and the free and open Indo-Pacific is uh, the latest iteration of what has been actually a very consistent policy. Uh, I think it's a useful term, Indo-Pacific, insofar as it draws attention to the strategic connections between the Indian and Pacific Oceans, which have always existed but have become more, more uh, uh, clearer uh, in, in more recent years. Uh, but it's a very broad slogan. Uh, it's not entirely clear what it means. Uh, and I think there are, there are really three clusters of questions that uh, most Southeast Asian countries uh, will have. First, uh, is it an inclusive concept or is it an exclusive concept? You mean vis-a-vis -vis China? Vis-a-vis -vis China, vis-a-vis -vis all countries, actually. Okay. Um, because China is part of the region, it, you know, that's a, a geopolitical fact. Second, what does it mean for efforts for economic cooperation within the, the region? Right? And thirdly, what does it mean for um, international law, uh, a rules-based order? Uh, that is a bit of a slogan that has got a certain connotation, but I don't mean it in that way. As a small country, obviously, uh, the more that uh, international relations are structured on the basis of law rather than you know uh, raw power, the better. So these are three clusters of questions. Uh, the ASEAN countries are, are still at a... Uh, initial stage of formulating their own concept of what the Indo-Pacific means. Uh, we are at the pivot point between the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, and surely we must have our own concept of what this means. Yeah. When I travel to the region, I sometimes hear in the context of China's rise, also this new Indo-Pacific policy of the Trump administration, the statement from, you know, think tankers and others in Southeast Asia, don't make us choose. In other words, we don't want to have to choose between China and the United States. I sometimes wonder if it's a cliche or if it's really strongly felt. How do you feel about that? Well, there is a tendency, not just among Americans, but among uh, many Southeast Asians or East Asians, to think of the world in binary terms. It must be A, if not A, must be B, and can only be B, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think this really captures the complexity of a very diverse region, not just Southeast Asia and Minya, but the broader East Asia or Indo-Pacific, I mean, call it what you want. Uh, it is much more naturally a multipolar region. Uh, now, the period of un unquestioned, unchallenged American dominance or preeminence 
was in historical terms very short. Maybe from circa 1989 to something like, um, well, 2008, 2009, when the global financial crisis hit. For most of the 20th century, in fact, for most of history, uh, the world was a much more complex place and uh, the region was certainly much more complex. Uh, when we say don't make us choose, we are trying really, at least in my mind, to, to instill a sense of this complexity uh, mm -hmm. on whoever our audience is. Uh, look, at the, look at the facts, right? Look at investment figures, look at trade figures, um, look at the military presence. Yes, China's footprint is growing. It's quite natural. But, so, but the U.S. is not disappearing. The Japanese are enhancing their footprint in, in many ways. So are the Indians. Uh, Australia is at the southern tip of this region. You have Korea too, you know, which is playing an increasing role. So it is a complex region. It is a naturally multipolar region. Mm -hmm. In Western international relations theory, and I'm not a great fan of it, but, you know, balancing hedging and bandwagoning are considered to be alternative strategies. Actually, in Southeast Asia, we do all three simultaneously and have always done so. I have never forgotten what a Vietnamese colleague once told me. Uh, he told me, I asked him, hey, what does the change of leadership in Hanoi mean for Vietnam's relations with China? And he's, I've never forgotten his answer. His answer was, Look, Bilahari, uh, every Vietnamese leader must be able to get along with China and must be able to stand up China. And if you think you can't do both simultaneously, you don't deserve to be the leader. <laughs> and that pretty much sounds out, sounds, sums up the Southeast Asia fundamental diplomatic instinct. Uh, i give you a, 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 two examples, right? Mm -hmm. When President Duterte came into power in the Philippines, if you read the American media con commentary, you would have thought that the sky has fallen, you know? But yes, he, he has a, he has, a, he, he represents a certain streak of Filipino nationalism that is not uh, always friendly to America. But at the same time, he has kept the alliance and he has enhanced Philippines relations with uh, America's principal ally in East Asia, Japan. Uh, former Prime Minister Mr. Najib was has been accused of being in, indebted to China because of the one NDB scandal. But he never stopped the Seventh Fleet from calling a Malaysian ports or never stopped American surveillance aircraft flying missions over the South China Sea out of Malaysian airfields. Now, yeah. this, this ability to, to do many things, to walk and chew gum and possibly listen to pop music at the same time is a natural dis uh, diplomatic instinct of the region. And it's too simplistic and, in fact, a distortion to look at it in purely bi binary terms. Having lived in Hanoi for many years of my life, I appreciate and understand the comment you made about the Vietnamese colleague. Turning to ASEAN for a second. ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, comprised of 10 countries in Southeast Asia, it's sometimes a glass-half-full, glass-half-empty analysis when people look at it. Some describe it as the most successful regional organization anywhere in the world. At the same time, it also is criticized for maybe not handling the South China Sea disputes more effectively or not doing more to somehow resolve the Rohingya issue, say, in Myanmar today. 
How do you assess ASEAN's performance recently, and where do you see it going in the future? You know, much of the criticism of ASEAN amounts to criticizing a cow for being an imperfect horse. And that is utterly pointless. <laughs> okay. A cow is a cow and a horse is a horse. They're different kinds of animals. Both have their own uses. Huh? Uh, you have to understand that ASEAN, unlike, say, the EU, has no supranational ambitions or very limited supranational ambitions. It's a collection of sovereign states. Sovereign states have their own interests and therefore the organization as a whole can do no more than what the members collectively allow it to do. We do some things pretty well and some things not so well. Uh, the fundamental purpose of ASEAN is to manage diversity, to prevent diversity from uh, degenerating into conflict. And from that point of view, ASEAN has been pretty successful. And that is its fundamental purpose. In a sense, everything else we do are means towards this end. Uh, in 1967, when ASEAN was formed, consider the region, right? The Cold War was quite hot on the mainland of Southeast Asia. Uh, Singapore had just been expelled from Malaysia and the relationship was fraught with racial tension. Indonesia had just stopped fighting a undeclared war against Malaysia and when we left Malaysia, against Malaysia and Singapore called confrontation. The Philippines was claiming a huge chunk of Malaysia, uh, namely Sabah. Uh, there were tensions along the border between Southern Thailand and Malaysia, West Malaysia, and between Southern Philippines and Indonesia. In short, the region was an utter mess. Mm -hmm. uh, today, we are by and large at peace with ourselves and with each other. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's the ASEAN's fundamental achievement. As I said, there are things we can do, things we cannot do. The South China Sea has become something of a proxy uh, for the strategic adjustments underway between the US and China. And that's a big boys game. Uh, uh, we can't do very much there. In an earlier period, uh, ASEAN played a, a major role uh, when the Vietnamese invaded Cambodia. In the uh, But that too was a big boys role. It was, that was a Sino-Soviet proxy con conflict beyond our power to resolve. ASEAN played a, a, a not inconsequential role in preventing a, fait, a complete being recognized until the global constellation of major powers shifted and it was possible to have some kind of solution. So there are things we can do, there are things we cannot do. Sometimes we will move faster than other times uh, and, and sometimes we will, we will not move forward along a smooth or straight trajectory. We move forward by meanderings and lurches, which is not unusual in uh, regional organizations. Mm. This is the reality. Yeah. Uh, the fundamental is, issue is, are we all better off with ASEAN or without ASEAN? Mm -hmm. I think the answer must be we're better off with ASEAN for all its imperfections. This is an imperfect world. Since the South China Sea has come up, I just want to ask quickly about the code of conduct negotiations. Where do you see these going? Are you optimistic that they will have some end that is good for the region, good for the claimants? Well, it's again one of those things better to have than not to have, right? If we can um, reduce the risk of accidents, uh, lower tension, the very process of negotiating it is, has a certain importance in itself. 
But it is not a silver bullet. It is not a magic wand that will magically somehow um, make all the, the, the different claims go away or resolve. It's not meant to adjudicate between claims. Mm -hmm. It is meant to regulate behavior, to make it less dangerous, to ensure that the, um, the level of tension is manageable. Uh, and that's all. I mean, from that point of view, it's useful. When it will be concluded, I have absolutely no idea. If you recall, the um, declaration of conduct in the South China Sea took 10 years to uh, negotiate, and the implementation guidelines for the declaration of conduct took a further 10 years. And certainly the issues in the code of conduct uh, are far more complicated than the declaration of conduct. Yeah. Uh, so don't hold your breath, okay. but there is a certain value in the process of negotiating one. Obviously, as you well know, summit season is coming up soon in Asia and Southeast Asia in particular, with Singapore hosting the East Asia Summit and ASEAN meetings in November. The White House has said that President Trump won't be attending this year and will send Vice President Pence instead. And I want to just ask if you think this sends a negative signal to the region about U.S. commitment, its extent of engagement going forward. Yes and no. And obviously, have all preferred uh, President Trump to come in person as he did to the Manila summit. Uh, but I think uh, given Mr. Trump's personality and character, it's not really a surprise that he did not uh, decided not to come. Besides, you are having a fairly crucial midterm elections in November. Uh, I, uh, I don't know what the outcome will be. I know You know as well as I do what the pundits say. Mm -hmm. Pundits are often wrong. Sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. So I'm not entirely surprised. So I don't think, uh, while it's not a good thing, I don't think it's a, it's a fatal thing. Because as I said earlier, uh, presidents come and go, but the U.S. presence in the region has been pretty consistent. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think it's things philosophically. <laughs> And you believe this to be true even in the context of America First and the broader approach of the Trump administration to the world? Look, you know, um, setting aside trade for a moment, right? In the, in the security and foreign policy sphere, I see as much continuity as I see. I see far more continuity than I see change. Uh, despite what Mr. Trump says or tweets, he has reaffirmed all the alliances. Uh, he has given the Seventh Fleet greater latitude to uh, conduct freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea than his predecessor did. He has, uh, to some degree, to a large degree, restored the credibility of American power. Uh, I think it was a huge blow, as big as cancellation of TPP, TPP, when President Obama drew a red line in Syria and then failed to enforce it. Uh, the credibility of American power was, to a large degree, resort, uh, restored when Mr. Trump decided to bomb Syria while having dinner with uh, President Xi Jinping. And without credible power, there can be no leadership. So I, I said, I take this philosophically. You know, um, one could wish that uh, Mr. Trump would express himself in a more calibrated way, but I tend to look at what is done what U.S. has actually done, and not just what uh, uh, one individual or the other says. Mm. Do you see sort of the America's first approach to the world, including on trade, as historical anomaly, or do you think it's a long-term trend 
that, you know, as a keen watcher of the United States from Southeast Asia is something that you can expect to see for a while? I think it's a symptom uh, of a deeper and more profound uh, phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the end of the uh, Cold War, a certain degree of hubris infected American foreign policies, beginning with the Clinton administration. And after 9-11, that led to these uh, interminable wars in the Middle East, um, which, you know, are still going on, although they don't call, you don't call them wars anymore, right? This really exhausted Americans, which were already very tired after the long Cold War, uh, it discredited the American political establishment and led first to the, to the election of Mr. Obama and Mr. Trump. I think neither is going to thank me for saying this, but I think they, are, they represent different facets of the same political phenomenon. And it's quite clear that Americans are no longer willing to bear any burden, pay any price uh, on behalf of the rest of the world. Uh, uh, that was clear uh, to my mind under Mr. Obama as it is under Mr. Trump. Uh, Mr. Obama's preferred burden-sharing mechanism was multilateral. Uh, Mr. Trump's is clearly bilateral, but it's different facets of the same political phenomenon. And I think this is going to be a long-term phenomenon. Now, it doesn't mean that Americans are just going to pack, pack up, pack your bags and you know, leave, right? You are too deeply enmeshed in the region to leave, even if you wanted to, and I don't think you want to. Um, if you look at the national security strategy, national defense strategy, neither of which are, are isolationist docu- uh, documents, you they they embed a, they embed a different concept of leadership, a narrower concept of leadership, which you know the slogan "Put America First captures, and you can debate this concept of leadership, but you can't call it uh, a withdrawal or a retreat. Hmm. <laughs> Not accurately, anyway. Well, let me turn to one last question. You recently became chairman of the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore. And I want to ask, what do you do in your new role? What issues are you focusing on? What are the important issues that connect the Middle East, say, to Southeast Asia? Well, I must tell you, I, I was responsible for starting the Middle East Institute more than a decade ago. Okay. Instructions of our then Prime Minister Go Chok Tong. But I took my eye off the ball and it went off in an overly academic direction. Uh, so um, its essential function was, the, was to provide alternative perspectives on um, Middle Eastern issues that are relevant to Singapore and Southeast Asia. And I think... Um, there are two, two, uh, two main clusters of issues that, that uh, are particularly relevant. One is, it has been evident for the last 25, 30 years that the nature of Islam as practiced in Southeast Asia, and don't forget this is a largely Muslim region, it's got one of the largest Muslim countries in the world, Indonesia here, has been changing under the influence of different varieties of Islam from the Middle East. Uh, a phenomenon I am called the Arabization of Southeast Asian Islam. The traditional Islam as traditionally practiced in Southeast Asia was largely Sufis, very syncretic, 
uh, incorporating elements of Buddhism, Hinduism, and in fact, uh, older uh, uh, religious or animistic practices. Now, this is being gradually replaced or Arabized by more austere forms of Islam as they are practiced in some Middle Eastern countries, mainly Wahhabists or Salafists. This is changing the, the texture of Muslim communities in Southeast Asia, making them more exclusive, which can be a problem in, because most Southeast Asian countries are plural societies. They are multicultural societies, and we have to live with each other. Huh? That's one cluster of issues. Uh, a consequence of that, and that's still in the same first cluster, is uh, it creates an environment that is more hospitable than previously to various uh, violent movements. They are not typical of Islam, of course. Uh, things like Al-Qaeda, Jamaya Ismaya, and most recently ISIS. Right? Uh, none of these things have anything to do with Islam, but when you have a very exclusive concept of any religion, uh, uh, it, it creates fertile soil. And you, you've seen it in South Philippines, in Marawi. Uh, I, I am I'm a bit afraid that it might embed itself in, because of the Rohingya issue in Rakhine State. Uh, that's one cluster of issues. Uh, the second cluster of issues is what happens in the Middle East does exert an influence on how major power relations are, are, are regarded in this region. I, I gave you one example already when Obama drew a, a red line in Syria and failed to enforce it. That was very damaging. Uh, uh, another example was when, Mr., when former President Mubarak of Egypt went in the space of one week from being a staunch 30-year ally to being uh, outcast, you know, you wouldn't even give him safe refuge. You wouldn't give him the time of day. Uh, and that made everybody think. <laughs> it resonated with how Sohato, another staunch 30-year 30 30 friend of the United States, were treated uh, in an earlier period. Hmm. Uh, China is moving into the Middle East. How it fares there uh, will, I think, have a bearing of how it's regarded here. Uh, the Xinjiang issue is something that I think is closely watched by Muslim communities around the world, including in, in Southeast Asia. And, you know, uh, governments may not want trouble, but you remember how the Salman Rushdie or the Danish cartoon incident started. It was not governments that drove it. You just need one imam to, to issue, one credible imam to issue a fatwa, and, mm. and things might uh, change, right? Yeah. So in these two big clusters of issue, Despite our best efforts to ignore the Middle East, the Middle East refuses to ignore us, and so we thought we better learn a little bit more about this region. Well, fantastic. Is there anything else you would like to tell our audience about Southeast Asia or U.S.-Southeast Asian relations? Well, one thing, and I'll, I'll end on that note. Sure. Um, the state of Southeast Asian studies in the United States is, I think, on the decline. There are, there are younger scholars that study it, but the whole state of academia means you study narrow and narrower slices of, uh, of any phenomenon. This is a general phenomenon in academia mm. globally. But it, may, it does mean that you, you, you don't uh, take a very... It, that this approach may be fascinating to the scholars 
to study, you know, narrow slices of things, basket weaving in Upper Sumatra or something like that. But it's not very useful for policy. And whether you like it or not, Southeast Asia is a strategic region which uh, the United States is engaged in. And I think you need a broader, a deeper knowledge of this region. You need to nurture uh, another generation of uh, broad-based scholars of Southeast Asia. And that's why, you know, the Brookings Institution's uh, chair mm -hmm. of Southeast Asia uh, can potentially play a very important role. And I hope it will. Well, thank you. And I assure well, you. Uh, on you <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Bilahari. I assure you, we are trying our best to uh, promote Southeast Asian studies and increase the visibility in Washington. But also, as I think you were suggesting, we're increasingly engaging with the remaining academic centers that focus on Southeast Asia and make sure that there's a strong connection between the academic focus on the one hand and the sort of policy analysis that's digestible to a broader audience as well. So we're doing well, our best. I think, you know, what you need to try and re-establish what used to be called regional studies. Yeah, okay. It's not fashionable in academia anymore, but I think it's rather important. Mm. And it's a pity that academia decided to discard the regional studies approach, the area <laughs> studies approach. Good. Well, thank you very much for joining us okay, today. Thank you. Yeah. The Brookings Cafeteria Podcast is the product of an amazing team of colleagues, including audio engineer and producer Gaston Reberedo, with assistance from Mark Holster. The producers are Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna. Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, does the book interviews. And Jessica Pavone and Eric Abalahin provide design and web support. Our interns this semester are Sharon Bernier and Tim Madden. Finally, my thanks to Camila Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Intersections, hosted by Adriana Pita, 5 on 45, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file, and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu slash podcasts. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.